Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, and there was also um, a bit of controversy with this, this episode because uh, Kanye West last week, about a week ago, was on stage in London, and he was freestyling. And one of the things he said was, uh, I got love for Hove, but I'm not fucking with suit and tie. Suit and tie is Hove, as he says, Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake's song that they did on SNL the other night. And in the, in the song, there's a line where Justin Timberlake says, uh, shit's so sick, got a hit, and picked up a habit. But he changed the line on Saturday to, my hit's so sick, got rappers acting dramatic. Megan, what do you think about that? I, uh, first of all, pronounced controversy, uh, just a little after <laughs> uh, Second of all, I think that's awesome. Um, I, I mean, look, I'm not a fan of Kanye, just straight off the bat. I mean, I think that Kanye was my least, one of my least favorite people to talk about before Chris Brown started physically assaulting his girlfriend. And then Chris Brown became my least favorite person. Um, but Kanye... Look, he hasn't gained any points by dating Kim Kardashian. I don't find much redeeming about him um, as a personality. And so I don't think that – I would have been happy for JT to bash Kanye, even if Kanye hadn't first insulted Justin. But the fact that he has, it's almost like, great. Now now there's an excuse for Justin Timberlake to get to bash Kanye West. And I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. even saying, like, I'm a huge fan of JT as a musician. I think he's actually a better comedian and actor than he is singer. Um, so mm. I think that this is like bringing the best of the two worlds together, you know? I'm, an, um, I'm an enormous JT fan. The best of all three worlds. Three things I love. Justin as a comedian, <laughs> Justin as a, as a singer, sure, that's okay, and then somebody bashing Kanye West. It's just yeah, so but just many sure, that's okay. That's not, that's not the best of that world, according to you. But, Sean, you're a big JT fan. Dude, I am to JT what you are to JB. I am you are <laughs> Oh god your your Bieber nation thing going on. I am and I will proudly admit I'm a Justin Timberlake geek. I mean, first of all, I've always been into the uh the freaking, you know, the soprano type singers, the high pitched Maxwells mm-hmm. and Michael Jackson. So anytime he, you know, gets into his high pitched Bee Gees type thing, I mean I get wet. All right. I mean I'm I'm sorry, oh. I do. So so <laughs> But the thing is about the Kanye thing, you know, I've become kind of like a troll on Twitter, and I and I watch these like the celebrity wars. Like I kind of get off on these 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 celebrity wars where they go after each other on Twitter or whatever. So the fact mm. that JT like just went after Kanye West, which is Jay Z's best boy, that was like the best of all. Anything that could have ever happened, that was the greatest thing for me. <laughs> for for a troll that loves celebrity beefs, I loved it. So wait, let me ask you this, Sean. For you, is like the celebrity sex tape for you, celebrities fighting on Twitter, which is better, sex tape or celebrities fighting on Twitter? Eh, you know, I, I, would, I think I'd have to go with the celebrities fighting on Twitter because Twitter, okay. really once, you, once you've really seen a penis, you've seen them all. So it doesn't really matter, like, to me if it's Kanye West's penis or Ray J's or whatever. It's gotcha, like gotcha. I'm, I'm good with I, – I like the off-the-cuff stuff, like the, you know, yeah. the wars, so – why do you bring it up, Megan? What do you prefer? Um, well, first of all, I do agree with you. Once you've seen a penis, you've seen them all. I think vaginas are, <laughs> I think vaginas are special and unique, and you can never get enough boobs. But like penises, like it's like one in fifty that's a special penis. Maybe not even. <laughs> I, the I only thing really is uncircumcised penises. So I don't know. It could be. But um, 
Uh, <laughs> wow, how quickly I had gotten this onto the track of how many penises I've seen. Um, not what I want to talk about. Yeah, I guess for me it would be celebrities fighting on Twitter. I, I try to avoid that as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'm me fighting with my own Twitter followers to worry about who Kim Kardashian is fighting with. Uh, I, I mean, I prefer, when I prefer celebrities fighting, I prefer, like, Rachel Maddow taking somebody on, somebody like Kanye West. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was a big fan of JT's retaliation because it was so subtle. It sounded good. It was, like, it, it was, Kanye's was more abrasive, his attack, and it was also unwarranted. JT's was yeah. just awesome, which brings me to my point. Uh, do you guys know how that whole Kanye-JT exchange made me feel? A certain way. I, I have a way. guess. I have a guess. Other than an ex-boyfriend, I, if she could, if she could prove to me that she could yeah. sing a song 
that that was different than just dating issues and woes and yeah. woe is me and yeah. I hate you and I'm getting back at you, then maybe I'd have a different opinion. I don't know. That's fair, and yeah. that's not a good role model. I mean, that's why Sarah Bareilles is so great. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to have to cut it off there. Uh, Megan, uh, Sean, thank you so much. Um, Megan, what do you got going on in your life? Well, right, well uh, we just had the second reading of In the Middle, which is a play that I have being developed by uh, the Active Theater Company. Um, I have a show coming up uh, at Don't Tell Mama called If Adele Can Do It. I wrote some satirical haikus for an evening that is going to be mostly uh, heartbreak songs. So there mm-hmm. you go. Uh, Ryan, you can check that out if you uh, are looking for someone to sing heartbreak songs other than Taylor Swift. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining the panel tonight. Thank you. Take care. Uh, Sean, hang tight for a second. Um, let me just verify who this is. Uh, 213, what's your name? Where are you checking in from? You talking to me? <laughs> is that to me? Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me, really? Because I got a Barbie in my hand right now. sit backwards. What's up? What's up? Oh, no. So oh, no, okay. while, while we wait for, for Freeway Ricky to call in, I, I think that uh, I thought now would be a good time to uh, have Sean <laughs> have you meet Tamika on, on the air. I love it. I, I, I told Tamika, Tamika, I told Ryan, I listened okay. to, to a bit, the, the, the black chick white, or black chick I'm white so dude. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry and, for that. No, I, li- so I listened to it, and I said, this woman I got to meet, because you are insane. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. No, y'all got to keep that up. You all have got to keep keep that up because if that kind of insanity comes every Monday, I'm a, I'm a, I'm hooked. What? What? I I haven't been around the Barbie lately, and even though I'm staying with my big sister here in Carson, California, beautiful Carson, California, my little niece is like 13. I noticed that she hid most of her dolls. <laughs> So Did she know about you? Well, I don't know. At this point, we don't know. <laughs> well, that, that's all I got to say about that. Well, there's, some, um, there's something that could be said for a person who treats dolls that way. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and I'm a medic. How about that? Oh, that's scary. I'm going to read about you on Forensic Files. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. That's a line oh. NBC. <laughs> uh, so you guys, you guys are both in in California right now. Did you did you feel that earthquake earlier? Yes, I did. You did. It woke me up. Mm-hmm. I, I it woke me up a little bit, and because I'm used to earthquakes to some extent, uh, I just went up, you know, went to the restaurant and went back to sleep because it wasn't long at all. You know what I mean? So it was just a little hmm. shake thing. That's it. Yeah, I didn't feel it. I see. See, I'm 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 of the opinion that like, cause I I never feel these things, and it's like I I, I don't know. It, you're odd to me that you that you felt it to me, cause normally like if I talk to like my black friends, none of them ever hear the earth, feel the earthquake, and it's like it's like almost Here we like go. it's Here almost we go. like cause white people like white people feel earthquakes like black people feel racism, like everything's racist. And, like, the same thing, everything's an earthquake. I feel it. Oh, my God, it's an earthquake. And it was like, you know, a bus driving down the road. 
Okay. I am not going to try and find your address and visit you this evening. Um, I will tell you this. Uh, having lived at the Studio City, uh, ah, that's right Canyon, yeah, uh, we had a lot of big trucks. I know the difference between uh, the earth moving and a big truck. Oh. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, so I didn't I'm gonna mean to. Tell, I'm, I'm going to just tell it to you like that. But, it, but oh. beyond that, Brian texting me your address, which is okay. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I don't I, know his I, address. Uh-huh. I, I, hold on. I, look, hold I, on. The locksmith. The locksmith just got here. The lock, Yeah, no, I want you to change that lock right away. ASAP. <laughs> he's downstairs. Hold on a second. He, hold on. He, he can't hear me. Uh, Anesacito change. <laughs> Um, 
that Coca-Cola actually released a commercial the other day that was, was really, like, brutally honest. Uh, I want to play it and get your, your guys' opinion, um, if that's all right. All right. All right, here we go. For over 125 years, we've been bringing people together. Today, we'd like to come together on something that concerns all of us, obesity. The long-term health of our families and the country are at stake. And as the nation's leading beverage company, we have played an important role. Across our portfolio of over 650 beverages, we now offer 180 low and no-calorie choices. These diet beverages still pose serious health risks. Even though we've reduced the calories per serving, these beverages can still cause kidney problems, obesity, metabolic syndrome, cell damage, and rotting teeth, which leaves 470 beverages, which have extremely high, unhealthy levels of calories. Consuming large amounts of rapidly digested sugar in high-fructose corn syrup causes a spike in blood sugar and insulin, which can lead to inflammation and insulin resistance, both of which may increase your risk of stroke, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and cancer. Coke has also been known to accelerate aging and cause high cholesterol. The American Heart Association recommends consuming no more than 450 calories from sugar-sweetened beverages per week, the amount in about three cans of soda. Imagine if cigarette companies said they were doing something responsible to protect you. How would you react to that? Beating obesity will take action by all of us based on one simple common sense fact. All calories are not the same, and the calories in Coca-Cola products has no nutritional value. If you choose to live a healthy lifestyle, then you should not be drinking any of our products. If you drink Coke, you'll get fatter and fatter. The solution is simple, and it's right in front of your eyes. Don't drink Coke. It's killing you and your family. Coca-Cola. We're partially responsible for America's obesity problem. Oh my God, that's brilliant! <laughs> I, I heard that and I thought, how you know this company is finally like? I <laughs> oh had God. no idea that they would be this honest. I, I haven't seen that type of honesty since my last Cialis commercial. <laughs> <laughs> you are a wreck for more than four hours. Well, I mean, come on, are you serious? If you're feeling in good health, what? Don't drink Coca-Cola. That's outstanding. I I, <laughs> I, I love it. I, I you know it, it, it's not, it's very refreshing, and, and that's a dual meaning when it comes to Coca-Cola. To hear an ad that actually tells me why I'm fat, <laughs> why I should, why I'm going to die if I drink their product. Outstanding. So along those lines, um, let's talk about something. Uh, we were going to talk about on the panel anyway. This uh, this soda ban in in New York City. Bloomberg is uh, he wanted to ban like anything over 16 ounces of sugary drinks, and today a, a judge declared that invalid. Um, Sean, what did you think of that? I was stunned, man. When you when you sent me because Ryan, if if you guys out there don't know, he actually takes his job seriously, unlike I do on my podcast. He actually sends out, you know, the, the topics ahead of time. When you sent me that topic, I swear I thought it was a, a joke. I thought you were you were just, you know, goofing. I, I, I'm <laughs> stunned that that – I mean, it's not even like this is podunk, you know, Fargo. You know, this is New York City. And the fact that they would have the gall to ban 
something that I have a, for a right to drink. It was just, it's amazing to me. It's like trying, it's like the parents' television council trying to tell me what I should watch on TV and how if I watch Family Guy, it's going to ruin my brain. I mean, who has the right to tell me that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, Tamika, what do you think? Well, I um, I would have to say I knew the uh, panel discussion and understand that the uh, soft drink thing was a big thing when I was out there the past five years. And I have to say that there's a law saying that women can run around topless. And I plan on doing that with my 20-ounce drink <laughs> and go from there. So you sure you don't mean 40 ounce? That's how I feel about it. No, nah, the 40, huh? no, nah, not in New York. 22, maybe, but no. <laughs> it, it just, it, there are so many other things that are taking place in New York City uh, that need to be addressed. And this guy, you can't, you can't have a drink over, what, 17 ounces? Because the last thing I saw in New York 1 is that they have judges going through particular establishments with a 17-ounce drink and measuring it up against a 16-ounce drink, and then those, those people get in trouble? you got to be kidding me. You know the you ironic thing for me? The ironic thing for me was that is that you look at New York and you look at the you know you look at Bloomberg and you look at these guys. It's really the people who don't need to be drinking Coke or sweets is is New Jersey. Look at the governor there. I mean, there's that's where they need to ban the the, the, the sugary drinks. And that's the healthiest fat man on the face of the earth. <laughs> right, I, I, he calls himself that, and I still. Lovingly call him Jabba the Hutt, but you know it, 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 it's it's a little special. And again, coming from a medical point of view, if you're going to ban what is it, 16 ounce drinks, and you have health inspectors or the FDA coming out with 17 ounce cups to test people, well, okay, what's in the cup before they go and test people? I mean, it's it's ludicrous. It's a very mm-hmm. What yeah. upset me was the, was the what upset me was the whole thing because I didn't even think about it. I'm like because I don't really drink that much pop, but I'm a I'm a I'm a liquor drinker. So I so I like you know I like my uh, my Captain and Coke and my gin and juice. I like all that stuff. So when I thought the first thing I saw when I saw that the, that it was gonna affect bars, like if I want to go in and order me a vodka cranberry, like bars won't will either charge more now because they can't buy. You know the sixteen ounce drinks in bulk like they they could. So as an alcoholic, as an alcoholic, this is the worst. I mean, I'm telling my people at AA, I'm going to AA, and I'm telling my people, hello, my name is Shauna, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm never going to New York. Well, the thing is, too, you got vitamin water that is served, uh, you know, at a what is it, thirty two. 16, maybe 12. Yeah. You got vitamin mm-hmm. water. You got, the, you got the triple X. You got even Gatorade. the one. Right. And people mix those drinks. They're sugar. That is what is the big thing. And I understand, talking from a medical point of view, that is a big thing, trying to get people to uh, understand their weight. It's unhealthy sometimes. And recognize that, 
But if you're going to regulate exactly what I'm able to ingest, that is not uh, a program that I need to really be a part of or support. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, Sean, yeah, I mean, you, you just mentioned the whole uh, alcoholic thing. Um, how how is your how is your diet going? <laughs> um, you know, my diet is 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 going good in the sense that this is the first week that I haven't had Popeyes three times in a week. <laughs> it was get it was getting and this is true. You know, I I like to joke, but this is true. It was getting so bad with me and Popeye that I would walk <laughs> into Popeye's chicken. And they would say, hey, okay, first of all, like I'm a long-lost friend. And then secondly, when I would order food, they, could, they would always say, hey, I threw in a couple extra pieces for you. I threw in a couple extra pieces. That's how bad it got. I was a family friend of the local Popeye's chicken. <laughs> well, well I, Tamiki, I, I you, you know that. all about that, right? You're always talking about Popeye's. Yes, and I love Popeye's, and it was very funny out in Astoria, where I'll be returning to soon. Um, they have a biscuit celebration or something like that, and I only have enough money to pay for like a two piece, and mm-hmm. they threw in like four other pieces and oh. three other biscuits. Yeah, Tamika, Tamika, I don't, Tamika, I don't know if you know this now that I know you're a Popeyes freak like I am. Now, now <laughs> this is what I've been trying. I've been trying to teach people this. You know how they, those people have these coupon websites and they make all the money telling people how to how to save money. Well, I wanted to start something to tell people how to get more chicken at Popeyes because the the what you do is no, this is serious. Now listen, what you do is you go in like five minutes before closing because they have to throw all that chicken out. Wait, listen, shut up. So you gotta go. You have to go in like five minutes before, okay? and so then you order yourself a five piece, and then you, you ask. Let, all you, you gotta do is wait, yeah. wait. All you have to do is ask. You just you ask these five words. What you doing with the chicken? <laughs> and when you ask that question, they know. Well, we're gonna throw it out anyway, and then you just get you can get you ten lamb extra piece of chicken. <laughs> I, I'm done. I, I can't because you are. It's almost like talking about Fight Club. You can't talk about that. <laughs> What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? That was my oh. dinner when I get back to the yard. What's wrong with you? And what's wrong, wrong with, with you? <laughs> Be more careful. See, you I messed everything that. up. No, you I messed about everything that. up. No. What's, what's this man's name again? Ryan, come on. What, Ryan, tell me that man's name again. What's his name? His name is Kevin Hart. Well, okay, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you, can't, you cannot sucker punch me like that. But whoever's talking about <laughs> nah, nah, nah. The, the, I was just the secret. I was trying to think of another 5'4 brother. Yeah. No, but the, no, it, is, it, the, it, secret, it, the secret about the chicken, you can't get yeah. that out. What I'm is sorry. wrong with you? And already I can see Popeyes is doing another commercial with that woman from New Orleans saying, by the way, if you come in our place at 9.55 anymore, you can forget about it. That's it. What you doing? I messed everything up. Sorry. I I forgot about my broke brothers and sisters. I'm sorry. I forgot. (laughs) Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'm going to be out in front of your doorstep at a 40 and be like, what's up? You got some chicken? Bloomberg's going to take it away. You better be careful. Um, So, Tamika, 
Okay. Let me uh, let's, let's move on to another topic. Um, now the 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 drinking. Well, let's move back to that. The Sean with the alcoholism. Um, I have been trying to diet for a while now, and like every Monday, I say I'm gonna I'm gonna diet and I'm not gonna drink anything because if I drink alcohol, it always leads. If I go with low calorie stuff, it always leads to beer. And then it, I drink about 20 beers, and, and then, you know, I, I'm fat again. So, right. Sean, what's your strategy with, with drinking and dieting? You know, first of all, it sucks because, you know, I, I'm a beer guy, and I like my good, you know, like the heavy, nice-tasting, flavorful beer. Not my, not my college Keystone or Natty Light thing. I like real <laughs> beer now. So huh. so the the problem is you got to drink that Michelob Ultra mm. or that MG64. Mm-hmm. And and so so my thing is I'm going to try over the next 90 days cuz I'm doing this P90X thing. So I'm going to try oh, over the next God. 90 days to try and not drink but five times over the next 90 days. That that includes wow. St. Patty's Day, you know, uh maybe 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 Uncle Irv's uh homecoming from prison. Maybe uh, I go to a family reunion. You know, I'm trying to budget in for for anything that could come up. You know, you know. Uh, so 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 maybe if I can do five times, if you can budget five times in 90 days to drink, you'll be all right. Uncle, er, I didn't know that uh, Murder Inc. was not in trouble anymore. He got out of jail. <laughs> yeah, he's not still in there. He's supposed to be released in April, so him, him, <laughs> yeah, him and him and ja, I think Ja Rule's coming too, so I think we got a whole big thing planned. <laughs> ja Rule, what's up? Well, yeah, Ja Rule, we don't. He might. We don't. We don't know, but he may at some point it, when he's not locked up, he may be coming on the show, but we don't know yet. So no problem. Ooh, uh, I want to be on that show. Right. Let's. We understand. That. All right. We're we um, understanding with this. You guys remember? Um, you guys remember when Dave Chappelle went crazy? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm Facebook friends with his uh, his his old writing partner Neil Brennan. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. And, me too. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were. And he posted at, at his status 45 minutes ago. I thought this was a bit cold. He said, "In case you're wondering what Dave Chappelle's up to." He just texted me, can't stop, won't stop, dot, 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 did stop. Ooh. Yeah, that was my reaction. Ooh. Tamika, what do you think about that? I would have to hold that information very close to me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that's not good for a broadcast, but I'm sorry. I have to hold that information very close. (laughs) What could you possibly... Have to, uh, all right, and Sean? I don't know. I don't know. I think he. Uh, yeah. It's it's almost like since Chappelle is really not Chappelle anymore, the guys just kind of kind of <laughs> let all the secrets flow. Because mm-hmm. we all know Chappelle is crazy. I don't know if I would oppose it that because you never know Chappelle. You know what's old is new again. So Chappelle could want another head writer here pretty soon. So, um, but I can believe. You know, I, I can believe that. Hold once. Sean, hold on one second. Sorry, let me just verify who who we got here. Um, uh, okay, I think you're calling from from a landline or Skype. What's your name? Are you checking in, Sean? Yeah, I, I wanted to check and see if 
my my cable bill was was connected. <laughs> what? 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 Hello? Yeah, hello. hello? Yeah, my, yep. my phone got cut off. I'm calling. I wanted to see if if y'all could connect my cable back up. <laughs> what, what are you? T- okay, who 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 is this? Oh, oh, this must uh, this this isn't the cable company. No, no I'm not are you trying the to cable company. <laughs> you, are you trying to reach Time Warner? No, uh, no, no, no. Um, Comcast, Comcast. <laughs> no, yeah, I, oh. I'm sorry. You're act- you actually called into a, a radio show. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Never mind then. I, I guess I got the wrong number. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> Take care. I, I, I like the way you handled that. I, I'm a little annoyed though. You didn't tell her her call may be recorded or for for verification purposes. Well, well, that's that's what oh, that's what God, I figured. That's funny. Wait, that's what I figured. is Wait, purposes well, a word? Wait, to me, to talk to Sean for a second. One second. Hey, you guys could talk to each other one second. I got a call coming in. Uh, All right. Hold down the fort. One second. So I really messed up with that Popeyes thing, didn't I? That's all right because I still like the biscuits with the grape jelly that they just throw in the bag, and that's okay with me. But I'm a red beans and rice guy. I'm a red beans and rice guy. I can't. Yeah. So you're out here? Are you out here in in California right now? Right. Okay, well, check this out. You probably know it. Bourbon Street up on, uh, what is it, Imperial, right by uh, the Forum? Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. This red beans and rice that I've had since graduate school down at UNO, so you know. Ooh. See, that's the thing. It's like I enjoy, I've lost the taste of what real red beans and rice is because Popeye's red beans and rice is so good. But then you try real red beans and rice, and it's like going to Taco Bell, and you eat the taco, and then you forget what real tacos are. And we are forgetting what red, real red beans and rice tastes like. So that's cool. Popeyes they do in a pinch with the spicy gravy or what have you. But if you're in Southern California, I would, and I know none of us get paid for this. I can care less right now. Um, (laughs) Bourbon Street Grill up on. I think it's Imperial right by the mm-hmm. old forum uh, location. That spot, they got the best red beans and rice. They're doing the catfish right, and they're well, doing the oysters right. I think you've sold me for Uncle Er's reunion for coming back from prison. That's what we have to cater. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have that catered in for Uncle Er's reunion. Well, we don't have dessert yet, so we got to find a spot for dessert. Oh, we got to find some peach cobbler, some peach cobbler. Well, you know what? It's funny you say that because my big brother brought me some, and it's still sitting in the refrigerator. I'm about to eat that after this. (laughs) Yo, Tamika, Tamika, Tamika. Yes, sir. Let me holler at you for a minute. Um, So... We, we let me holler, holler. Uh, we actually uh, Rick, Rick still hasn't called in, so we're gonna talk to um, uh, a guy named Geo instead. Uh, and yes. uh, he's been very helpful with this show and everything. And so, and he's got a lot of projects going on. Um, I think we actually may may have Rick 
on the line actually now that I think about it. Let me let me just see who this okay. is. Uh three one oh what's Rock. the name where you're checking in from? Rick Rock. Oh, oh hey, there go. you are. Here we go, here we go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Um Sean, let me just say goodbye to my friends. Uh Sean Broyles, uh thank you so much for joining the program and for sticking around as long as you did. You got it, man. We'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. And let's see. Uh, one second, Mr. Ross. All right. Um, okay. Well, uh, my my first guest tonight, uh, the website is freewaysocialmedia.com. Please welcome to the program, Freeway, Ricky Ross. Yes, sir. How you doing? Okay. I'm I'm doing all right, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. All right. I'm so glad um I'm talking to you now. I actually uh went on your your website yesterday and saw it was released that Nick Cannon will play you in your upcoming biopic. Uh and yeah. I read that you wanted to play I, you wanted him to play you since 1996. Now, Rick, wasn't he like 12 in 1996? No, nah, I don't think he was. He was young. But not not quite that young, <laughs> I don't think. I don't know. Okay. I don't know how old he is. But I know at, at that age, he, whatever age he was in in '96, '97, he was making moves, and 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 that's what really impressed me with him. Uh, because and, I don't know if my role is is really uh, uh, to be based on on acting. Uh, I think it should be more based on uh, uh, on the way the guy thinks. Okay, sure. Um, and so is that why you decided that he was the right man to portray you? You see a little of, of yourself in him? Yeah, I did, you know, from a distance. But then when we, 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 we met the first time, you know, and I looked at this guy, and, and then the guy was so humble. And, and, you know, this guy is one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, especially black men, without, without a doubt. You know, there's probably yeah. uh, only one guy more powerful than he is in, in some aspects, and that would probably be Tyler Perry. Uh, in, in, in my mind. Uh, so, so when I met him and, and 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 the guy was so humble and so respectful that, uh, it just it really you know it kind of like gave me like this this irking feeling like you know I haven't met anybody else out here on the streets like that that gave me that type mm-hmm. of feeling like anybody else you know you go you know you you meet them and it's like ah you know another one of those guys you know who's right. supposed to be funny. But with and, Nick, um, Nick gave mm-hmm. me that feeling the way I try to make other people feel when they meet me. You know, like, you're the most important person in the world, and I know that. You know, mm-hmm. not the mm-hmm. kind of feeling where, you know, when you go around those guys and, 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 and uh, you know, you feel like like they really didn't respect you. You know, mm-hmm. like they they treated you like you wasn't there almost. Right. I don't know. I don't know if I'm if I'm giving you what I, the right feeling that I'm trying to say or not. But you mm-hmm. know, it was just a different feeling, man. That that that, that mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. than what I Hollywood guys. Yeah, I get it. I guess, and you got to go with your instincts, and it sounds like you're going with your instincts with this one. So that's. That's what you got to do. Um, I just want to let you know that in solidarity, I am right now wearing the the real Rick Ross is not a rapper T-shirt, and uh, I'll I'll tweet a self 
I'll, I'll tweet a self grinder like pick to prove it too. Um, so, so let's, let's talk about that. Uh, let's go back to before the lawsuit started against William Roberts while you were in prison and you found out there was a rapper making a living off of your name. Uh, what was your initial reaction? I was like, wow, you know, uh, two feelings came over me, you know, one of, 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 you know, admiration and respect, you know, that the guy felt enough about me to name himself after me. Uh, but then right after that feeling, you know, it came back is that, you know, the guy didn't have the decency and the respect to, to reach out to me and let me know that he wanted to use my name. Mm-hmm. So why is it so important for him not to use your name as his name? Why is that important to you? Why is it important to me? Uh, really, just the respect of had he came to me like a man and 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 show respect, I wouldn't have a problem with him using my name. Mm-hmm. He was using it the way I felt it should be used, and not you know uh, 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 what I call disrespecting it. You know, uh-huh. because at the end of the day, it's mine. I build it. Uh, I feel that I'm entitled to it. Uh, then I would have any no problem with it. But when it's somebody that is so arrogant and so disrespectful that they feel that they can, you know, basically trump on my wishes and, and my desires of something that's not just because the government uh, – put handcuffs on me and tied me down and held me down and, and bogged and gagged me, don't mean that somebody else should come along and say, hey, man, this guy is helpless. You know, let me take advantage of him. Yeah. You, you know, I think you might be suing him for the wrong thing. I think you should file a lawsuit to make sure he never takes his shirt off again. <laughs> um, so tell me you know, about encounter this uh, the state. Everybody I'm should sorry, be suing for that because everybody should be suing for that because I thought that was disrespectful to everybody. Uh, it was. <laughs> it was. Yeah. So they, no so, good. I was, so they put they put it in. You know when he when he's with his boyfriend. Okay. So uh, Rick, tell me about encountering uh, the fake Rick Ross in Miami. I heard he I heard he gave you the finger. What What did you do when he gave you the finger? I, I really took it as a joke, you know, uh, because you don't threaten nobody uh, without meaning it. Yeah. Uh, so, well, what did, and he didn't give me the what, finger like uh, the mm-hmm. fuck you finger. He gave me the finger like uh, put his fingers as if he was pointing a gun. Oh, wow. That's even worse. Yeah, very, very so. What did he do? What did you want to do when he gave you the finger? You you just took it as a joke. Well, you know I, I you know the old me, you know, wanted to uh, mm-hmm. have his ass whooped. <laughs> uh huh. But not the new you. But the new me, you know, knowing that I'm on parole and and all the consequences consequences that it would cause me, and and you know I, I'm not really with that. Uh, I took it as a joke. Okay. And I but heard see, you he say on jokes. He takes a lot of things as for jokes that get people killed. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, that's why he's having the problems he's having and, and people are shooting at him. Mm-hmm, because of mm-hmm. 
just don't do because, you know, when you're out on these streets, because if you do, they have consequences, and, and some of the consequences are life and death sometimes. He just seems like a, a maniac. Uh, I heard you say on Joe Rogan that he's definitely crazy. Uh, I heard you talk about how you think he's lying about having played football in high school. Well, what's what's going on inside this guy's mind? Well, you know what he did? He, he was successful in duping everybody. I mean, you know, he definitely had that on point, you know, where he's living a, 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 a lavish, a rich life, whether he's rich or not, you know, who knows. Uh, but he's definitely living a lavish lifestyle. Uh, you know, girls that would never, you know, would never talk to him, you know, wouldn't even walk on the same sidewalk that he he would walk on. And, you know, now maybe having sex with him and, you know, guys mm-hmm. that probably would have did the same thing are now having sex with him. So, you know, I mean, he, he's living the dream of, of some people. So uh, you, you think that um, this guy, the fake Rick Ross, you think he's he's bisexual? Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely? Yeah, I think he is. Okay. Um, and uh, I want to uh, I want to read you this quote from my friend that I went to college with named Alan Arthur. I wrote on my, my Facebook status the other day, uh, the real Rick Ross is not a rapper, and then my friend Alan commented and said, the fake one barely is. I thought you would enjoy that. <laughs> hey, that might be another T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him to get one. Um, uh, and uh, I, I want to read his quote, first, and then we'll we'll move on from talking about this guy. Uh, but uh, Rick Rick Rose, he said, he was talking about getting sued, and he said, it's like owning a restaurant. You're going to have a few slip and falls. You get lawsuits, you deal with them, and you get them out of their way, out of your way. Sometimes you lose. What's what's your reaction to that quote? Well. He thinks that this is just a slip and fall, but, you know, it's much deeper than that. Uh, I don't know. You know, the guy guy is all over the place. I mean, he he may say anything. You know, like Joe Rogan said, you know, uh, you couldn't ask for a better idiot. And and (laughs) the guy guy is probably going to wind up being his his worst enemy in the long run uh, because he just constantly – finds ways to, to, to hurt himself. And, you know, with a statement like that, I think he's trying to shoot himself in the foot again. He's trying to practical himself, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so now the, the next court date is, is in August. Uh, aren't, aren't you tired of being in court yet? Yeah, I am. I really am. I, I, I'm really tired of dealing with the whole the whole matter. You know, I really want mm-hmm. to go on and and... and, and and do my life, uh, but it still hurts me to know that, that that some guys run around, you know, portraying me, and and uh, ready, ready, you know, he's lying to our kids. You know, they come to this guy on every radio station. You know, you you go on in, in America, you're gonna hear this guy on there <clears throat> talking about how great it is to sell drugs, and he never tells them. You know, he never tells the kids that you're going to prison. You know, he has kids mm-hmm. believing that, that, that he made his money from selling drugs. <clears throat> when in actuality, Dev Cam came in and bought him everything that he owns, you know, dresses him and and and, and everything that he does, you know, Dev Cam did it. So I think that it's, it's, it's not only disrespectful to, to, to me, but it's just really disrespectful to the whole country. And and it shows the hypocrisy in, in our system because our system will say, you know what, it's illegal to sell drugs, 
unless you're doing it on records. You know, you can sell drugs on record. You can say I sold 300 keys and I did this and I did that and that I'm successful and that I'm on the radio station. You know, how do kids look at that? You know, when a guy comes on the radio and says, oh, I sold 300 keys and I did this and I did that. First thing pop in their head, oh, I can go out and sell drugs and I'm never going to go to jail for it. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, I, he's not dealing with well, the consequences. Rick mm-hmm. Ross, and he didn't go to jail. <laughs> he was a corrections officer, wasn't he? Exactly. The guy doesn't even have the guy doesn't even have a felony. The guy doesn't yeah. even have a misdemeanor arrest. Uh-huh. Do you th- uh, do you think that one day maybe you'll come out with a a rap album and and name yourself William Roberts in retaliation? Wouldn't that be great? It would be hard though. It would be hard. That that name, you know, would be... <laughs> I understand why he chose Rick Ross. Because his father was named William Roberts and you know, he didn't like his father. Mhm. So he couldn't allow well, that's why, I guess. So you mm-hmm. know, he's somebody else. So yeah. um if you don't like yourself so- then you just be somebody else. Right. Just be yourself. Nothing wrong with yourself, although I don't know. He could he could stand to lose some weight. Um, and so we've talked a lot about the the fake Rick Ross's background. Um, let's let's get into a little bit of yours. Uh, we know you're doing a lot of good now, but you're coming from a very dark place. Uh, in, in talking to you and in, in listening to and watching your interviews, it, it's very clear to me that you know you're a nice man, you're a, you're a decent man, you're a, you're a smart man, and at face value, you you don't come across as the type of of man who could be responsible for a lot of uh, detriment and destruction in, in inner-city America. Tell me how you went from being all-city at Dorothy High to, to being the quintessential American gangster. Well, it, easy, easy, easy. You, you know, we all make bad turns, and we all make mistakes. And even though I, I thought I knew it all <clears throat> when I was 19, uh, you know, most people, you know, most kids at 19 don't know nothing. Not as half as much as they gonna know when they get fifty three. So I was nineteen years old and, and it looked like uh cocaine was the thing to do. You know, it wasn't uh, nasty like it is now, which right now it, it gets more glory now than it did back when I was coming along. You know, uh back then nobody would come out on T V and say that they sold cocaine, you know. Funny <laughs> mm-hmm. how times have changed. Uh yeah. But uh 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 it was just a time that, you know, all entertainers, you know, snorted cocaine, you know, <laughs> smoked it. So it looked like it was the better life, you know. And, and all my life I've been living in poverty, you know, in South Central. And, and I wanted a piece of, of, of the good life. You know, I wanted to enjoy some of the finer things of life. Mm-hmm. And so that's how you got into it. And you went to... Uh... Uh, you went. You went to. A, you wound up going to a trade school uh, where your teacher dealt cocaine. Now, uh, well, first off, do you think that if you could have, if you were reading and writing when you were at Dorsey High, do you think you could have a- actually made a career out of playing tennis? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I could have made a career out of playing tennis if I was a little smarter. You know, okay. if I knew a little more about what it took to uh, to become a, a, a tennis pro. I mean, you know, with everything mm-hmm. in life. You have to uh, uh, really learn what it is that you're doing. You know, you have to become mm-hmm. an expert. And, and what I did, I did a lot of soul searching when I was in prison. 
And what I found out is that even though when I started selling cocaine, I was a novice. Mm-hmm. And when I was a novice, I didn't make any money, none. Mm-hmm. They beat me out of everything I had. They, they sold me baking soda. They sold me, one time I bought $80,000 worth of cake mix. Mm-hmm. So I had to go home and make I had to go home and make a cake out of that stuff and eat it. <laughs> uh huh. But but it was all a learning experience. But what I did is I learned <clears throat> and I got to where I could master the trade. I got mm-hmm. so good selling cocaine that I could tell you just about any day what part of the city the drugs was the highest in. I could tell you who was gonna be selling drugs in that area. Uh I could even tell you in certain parts of the country, of the whole country where drugs were the most expensive, how much it would cost you, how to get it there. I mean, whatever you want to know about it, I, I have started to learn, you know, what it mm-hmm. took. Okay. And and this this teacher that you encountered when you went wound up going to a trade school, uh, this teacher dealt cocaine. This, this guy must have been the worst at keeping secrets if, if his own students found out what he was doing. Well, the rest of the students didn't find out, uh, uh, I don't think. Uh, uh, well, maybe eventually, because I imagine that his habit probably eventually took him under. I'm sure it mm-hmm. did. You know, we, we lost contact because he started using drugs so much that, that it, it got out of hand. Uh, but at the mm-hmm. time, you know, nobody really knew what he did. I didn't know until uh, I went to him and let him know that, that, that I was actually selling cocaine. And that's when he mm-hmm. uh, revealed his his self to me. I see. How did you know that you could confide in, in him when you went up to him and, and told him you were doing this? Oh, we played tennis together a lot. Uh, you know, we had that, just that bond, you know, where, where, where I felt that he was somebody that, I mean, we talked about other things, you know, like tennis and uh, how was I going to move forward, you know, with my life. And, you know, just, just he was kind of like the father figure that I never had. I see. And in the um, in the seventies, cocaine was being done predominantly by rich white people. Um, how did you how did you know to that cooking the powder down with the baking soda would would make the drug cheaper? Well, I didn't know. I, I discovered it, you know, as I got involved. Mm-hmm. You know, people people started to teach me about okay. cooking it up. You know, uh, how to cook it up, how to cut it. I mean, they taught me everything that I learned about cocaine. I learned from 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 people who were using. Mhm, mhm. So it wasn't other dealers, but it was users. Yeah, yeah. Dealers don't teach you nothing. Mhm. And dealers tell me say about the game is to be your told. dealers mm-hmm. say the game is to be told, not told. Right. And tell me about your relationship that that formed with um, Oscar Danilo Blondon. Well, after I eventually met Danilo, let me tell you how we met. Danilo's brother-in-law, uh, who had been my suppliers for, for, for a while, had got cold feet. He was making so much money that, that he got scared. So he had decided that he was going back to, to their country. So what he did is he came to me and he said, man, I'm going to introduce you to Danilo. And for introducing you to Danilo, you're going to have to pay me $60,000. What? Yep, yep. Then he went okay. to Danilo and told Danilo that you're going to have to pay $60,000 to meet Rick. So we both paid him the $60,000 and we met. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started off. 
I made the sixty thousand dollars back the same day. <laughs> okay. Uh, in dealing with him at first, when you were coming up, did, did anything ever strike you as off or strange about him? No, because I never, I never been to that level before. That was my first time uh, meeting somebody that could, uh, that could bring me, you know, two or three hundred thousand dollars worth of cocaine at a time. Mhm. Gotcha. And it got to the point when. When there there was basically no competition for you, your your rivals were buying from you, right? Pretty much, you know, the guys that 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 sold cocaine before me, you know, who I'd heard about and stuff like that, uh, you know, I pretty much wiped them out. Wow, and you're also the pioneer of the the rock houses or stash houses. Uh, do the shoes hanging from the power line still signal the the rock houses today? <clears throat> no, no, we didn't use those as a sign. Uh, we, we tried to keep our rock houses as low-key as possible. We didn't want any signs. You know, all we had to do was go to a neighborhood and tell them the address, and uh, the traffic would come. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you want to kind of keep it on the on the DL, which is also something that uh, you're known for. Is A lot of these other dealers got very flashy. They were showing off their fancy clothes, fancy jewelry. Um, why did you not want to do that? What, did, it, was it kind of uh, a tactic to, to not get caught, the fact that you never really dressed uh, dressed up in fancy million-dollar suits and stuff? Right. It started off as, as a way to hide from my mom, you know, not – because my mom, she she was one of the ladies. She, you know, she was strict, and she was mm-hmm. a Christian. When she found out I was selling drugs, she called me the devil. Wow. Yep, yep, that's what she said. So I was really trying to hide it from her because I I I didn't believe she could understand. She I, I didn't believe she understood. My mom was old, older, older type of person. My mom picked cotton mm-hmm. when she was a little girl, you know. Wow. So she could go way back south, you know. When yeah. when they used to have to uh, uh, still down where my mom is from, they still say uh, even though you may be older than a white person, they still say yes sir, yes ma'am to them. You can be mm-hmm. seventy years old. And, and and you're talking to a young white person, they're going to say, yes, ma'am. My cousins in Texas still say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. Wow. So her, her her roots go way back, and I didn't understand that. I didn't figure that if you're younger than me, I ain't saying yes, ma'am, nor yes, sir, and didn't care <laughs> if you was older than me, I wasn't going to say it. Mm-hmm. So my mom, my mom and my dad was cut from a different cloth than I was. So I thought that she didn't want me to sell drugs from her thinking. In mm-hmm. her background, right? Uh, when she called you, when she found out what you were doing and called you the devil, I'd imagine that that was a very painful moment for you. Yeah, but I, I know I knew that she didn't understand. You know, my mm-hmm. mom never wanted to be rich. You know, my mom never thought about you know owning hotels and casinos and. You know, living in a big house on the hill and stuff like that. She never thought about that. You know, right? She's a simple person. You know, she wants to play dominoes at home, and you know, and had a family over. So it really didn't hurt me when she when she called me that. You know, because I knew she didn't understand. She didn't understand I, how people got power. That power has always been taken and never given. Yeah, and when you when you started to see people in in your own neighborhood lining up around the block to get high, um, did you feel 
any guilt at that time at kind of the, the height of your status as a as a drug kingpin? I didn't feel any guilt until around eighty six, eighty seven. And that's when I was uh uh one of my one of my original customers and she was a smoker and, and, and we had, we had, we had kinda created a bond where she was almost like a sister type of relationship and she had she had quite a few kids. And mm-hmm. She couldn't get herself together, you know, even though she was trying to sell drugs, she wanted to sell drugs, and she really put her all in it, but it just didn't work for her. And she would take her money and spend it all on drugs. Well, yeah. once it went over, she said she had got herself together and, and whatnot, and she wanted to start trying to sell again, and she wanted to invest about 700 to $1,000 or something like that. And so I go over to her house, and, you know, and her son was looking at me. He was about seven years old, and he was looking at me like, uh, you know, you taking all the money, you ain't gonna be no food in the house. Because mm-hmm. she ain't gonna do right. Right. So and he knew that I, he knew that yeah, at seven years old. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. These kids are smarter than than we think they are. Mm-hmm. And I believe he knew what I was selling him. Okay. Well, anyway, that day it, it struck me a way that I had never been struck before. And that was the day that I started thinking about maybe this drug thing is not what uh, what I thought it was. And is that when you decided to move to Ohio, or is that when the, the catalyst kind of was put in your mind? Uh, it was, yeah, it was during that same time. Mm-hmm. Um, also, during the time, there was, uh, you found it a natural progression for street gangs to be the distributors of your products, so this where you were at 74th and Hoover, it became the, the heart of L.A. Uh, did the dealers, there were dealers buying Uzis and AK-47s. Did you anticipate that getting gangs involved in, in the drug culture was going to result in this massive amount of violence that it did? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. I, I, I really felt, and I believe for a time it did uh, ease the drug, ease the violence. Uh-huh. Uh, because what happened is, is drug dealers don't like violence. They don't want anything to interrupt their money. And with violence come narcotics and and, 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 and all kind of other police agencies come when you, when you have violence. But what happened is <clears throat> guys armed themselves heavily. I did too. I, mm-hmm. was, I was very heavily armed. I mean, you know, I had enough Uzis and silencers and, and MAC-10s and Thompsons you know, to take on a nice little, 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 you know, little army. Right. Uh, so what happened is, is that everybody did uh, heavily arm themselves, but I never saw it coming. You know, I never saw that 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 it was going to stop being where money was flowing uh, constantly because I believe once the money stopped flowing constantly, then the gang started not having anything to do, so they started fighting. Uh, mm-hmm. What my goal was when I started employing them, is because they were my friends. They were the same guys that I went to high school with and junior high school with, and, and to see your friends unemployed and, and, and out of work and, and suffering uh, was rough. I mean, it's almost the same thing I'm doing right now. You know, just today mm-hmm. I, gave, I gave like five uh, uh, guys uh, what I call 10-packs, uh, uh, and I'm sure they, they're probably going eventually, once they find out I'm doing T-shirts, they're going to probably make that illegal too. Because uh, I don't think it's... <laughs> I don't think it's about the drug. That's really mm-hmm. why 
uh, the people who came down on me. Because if it was about the drugs and killing people and, and, and destroying people, then they would shut the cigarette manufacturers down tomorrow. Because yeah. those people kill more people and harm more people. I mean, I, I know people that, uh, 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 and, and then the cigarette people, they don't have the heart I have, you know, because they'll uh, they'll sell a pack of cigarettes to the lady if it's her last $5. They don't care. Uh, they just want right. you to buy their product. Mm-hmm. So if the government was right. really about uh, saving people, you know, they would they would uh, go after the cigarette manufacturers and shut them down and tell them to stop killing all the millions of people that they've killed, uh, uh, not only in the U.S. but you know all over the all over the world. So <clears throat> I didn't see it coming, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, <clears throat> my people needed jobs, and uh, you know. I felt that what I was doing was 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 helping them uh, get jobs. Right. And and at the time that you were dealing, you were you were providing jobs for your friends. You were doing all these positive things, like throwing neighborhood parties, sponsoring a football team, and and everyone loved you, and they loved you regardless of the fact that you were the guy putting their sons, their daughters, their brothers and sisters, husbands and wives in, in jeopardy. How how did you manage that? I mean, and you know you're what? A, you're, when me and Nick Cassavetti was writing the script, you know Nick Cassavetti came over to South Central to write the script, right? Mm-hmm. So okay. we're sitting in this big warehouse, and, and, and he's writing, and he's interviewing guys, my old my old crony uh, from the neighborhood. And, you know, when, when me and Nick was in a room by, by ourselves, I asked him, I said, Nick, maybe this sounds crazy, but why do these people love me? Mm-hmm. Don't they know that I sold crack to their mothers and their fathers and their brothers and their sisters and their uncles and their aunties and their daughters? And he said, you know what? That's a good question. Well, he called me back a couple of weeks later. He said, Rick, even though you did that, the whole community was feeding off of what you did. He said, every mm-hmm. time you sold 100 keys, you only took in a million bucks. But when you break that down, it turns into eight million bucks. So eight million bucks every day. I was bringing in eight million dollars in the South Central Los Angeles for people to touch. So a lot of people wow. touch money. <clears throat> and when you're touching that kind of money, you know sometimes people will overlook the fact that 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 you know that their father and their mother got involved. And then you know they 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 also have to take some responsibility themselves. You know. Uh, because I never put a gun on nobody or tell my 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 my, my homies to hold them down while I put a pipe in their mouth and light the cocaine up and you know cook the cocaine and put it on their pipe and and make them smoke it. I never did that. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, people was chasing me down to give me their money to give them some cocaine. Right. So they were they were coming to you. You weren't going to them. Uh, when so you mentioned Nick Cassavetes. Is he he writing and directing the movie? He's got to write and direct. That was oh, one okay. of the one of the that, that Nick uh, that Nick Cannon was was willing to come on. He said that you know uh, uh, he had admired Nick's work and uh, he thought that uh, you know that Nick would 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 give him that look that he wants. Uh, are you and, willing to work with any guys who are not named Nick? Well, you know, the Nick and the Rick goes together. You know, I mean, I really like 
<laughs> no, 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 no. I'm willing to uh, to work with anybody. You know, I've been getting a lot of phone calls too from people wanting to get roles in the movie, and I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out. I already gave away two roles in the movie myself, you know, and I'm gonna have to argue to get that in. But I'm gonna probably give away one more role in the movie, you know, that I'm gonna fight to get, and I just don't know how I'm gonna give it away uh, uh, yet. Uh, but but uh, I'm gonna give away one more role in the movie uh, myself. Uh, okay. But I'm gonna, I gotta figure out how I'm gonna do it. Do you know who who are you gonna play in your own movie if not you? Well, you know what? I, I don't plan on playing in it unless in a, uh, uh, Nick and Nick wants me to. Right. Both of them have okay. to say, yeah, we want you in. If one say we don't want you in, I'm out. Gotcha. Uh, th- so this, let's get back to this kind of ongoing party in, in California. Um, it, it, it slowly turned into um, somewhat of a, of a horror movie. The homeless population skyrocketed, and even back in – um, 05, 06, I lived in L.A. for two years, and, and I've, I've only ever lived in cities, but I've never seen anything like Skid Row in Los Angeles. Uh, still pretty prevalent today. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, uh, I believe because our, our system is failing. I believe that people only use drugs because they can't deal with what's going on around them. You know, people mm-hmm. that are, are functioning and everything is going great, they don't just all of a sudden turn to drugs. So something is wrong with the system when 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 its people start to use drugs. Mhm. Uh, and speaking of something wrong with the system, the the drug war got really crazy in the 80s. Sentences for crack possession were equal to 100 times the amount of time served for powdered cocaine. Has anyone ever given a good reason for that? Do, do you think that it was purely a, a racial attack launched by the Reagan administration? Absolutely. I got the guy. I sit on the couch. I sit down on the couch with the guy who wrote the law, mm-hmm. who dreamed it up, wrote it, and gave it to the Senate. I sit on the couch with him, and he's going to explain to everybody in my documentary how the law came about, and people are going to be shocked. And 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 oh wow, they're going to be shocked. You know, they might start looking at, at young black men different. You know, than they look at them right now. So this is an upcoming documentary you have. Yeah, it's called Cracking the System. Uh, we're editing it right now. We should be through editing it around maybe 45, 50 days. Mm-hmm. So that's going to come out. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do it yet. I haven't made my mind if we're going to uh, 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 if, if we're going to theaters or if we're going to uh, go to HBO or what yet. Uh, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about what what I, I was talking to uh, the director and the head producer about the other day was maybe doing, like, a couple college dates. You know, we go to some universities and show it and then talk about it. That's a good idea. Um, so if universities think, uh, out there that want us to come and bring the documentary, give me a call. <laughs> okay. Heard it here first. Absolutely. Um, and what's it called again? Uh, Cracking the System. Cracking the System. Uh, speaking of the system, uh, you became so powerful that the LAPD launched an entire unit called the Freeway Ricky Task Force to bust you. Um, they beat up fam- your family members, stole your money, and I heard they even carried drugs on themselves to plant when they found you. What, what was that? What was that experience like? Well, you know, uh, even though I was a high school dropout and you know had never read a book, I was still out. I was still able to outsmart one of the most elite task force 
that uh, California had ever assembled. And mm-hmm. they they got so frustrated because their bosses stayed on their heads about not being able to catch me that they eventually uh, turned to uh, planting drugs and, and, and all kind of other crazy stuff. Wow. So then we we move into what you're talking about before when you had kind of that epiphany at the door with the seven-year-old and then you, around that time, moved in with your girlfriend in Ohio. Um, but then when you were in Ohio, you wound up getting in the game there. Do you think kind of much like a, a crack user gets addicted to crack that you were addicted to selling or addicted to the money that you were making from it? Absolutely. The money is so addictive. I think money is more addictive than drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that, that most people that get involved with the drug trade get in, get get started in order to make money. And then from there, they become addicted to, to the drug. Mm-hmm. So they become addicted to the drug, and then the dealers becoming addicted to the money. So it's just everyone's addicted to, to something that's destructive. You want to hear some crazy stuff? Look what the Please. drug dealer does. Look what he does. He go out and get money to buy cocaine. Mm-hmm. He sells the cocaine for money to go buy more cocaine. Mm-hmm. That's his life. That's how he spends his life every day. Yeah. Every day, the same thing. Oh, get money to buy drugs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like playing golf. I remember George Carlin had this routine where he said, I don't understand golf because you, you hit the ball, you go and find it, and then you hit it again. I say pick it up, put it in your pocket, and go home. You're lucky you found it. <laughs> you know? That's a good one. I like that one. <laughs> okay, it's so the then we fast forward. The it's the same thing with the drugs. You got the drugs, right. you make it home. You're lucky you made it. <laughs> exactly. And then let's go to 1989. You're back in L.A., and then I I read that the the cops cornered you, and the legend is that you threatened their dog with a, with a skillet. Is that true? No, no, no. I'm the one that got clobbered with the skillet. What happened is, oh, really? is, is cops, the cops came. You know, I hadn't been selling drugs for a couple of years. Cops came. They had a secret indictment for me, which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't like cops, so when I saw them, I ran. Okay. Uh, you know, anytime I see cops, except now, you know, now I don't run from them. Uh, but back <laughs> then, anytime I saw cops, I got out of there. So the cops pulled up, burning rubber, scratching, you know, about 20, 30 cars. And first thing popped in my mind, bad news. You know, they're going to try to kill you. So I mm-hmm. took off. They let off about six or seven shots, you know. Uh, wound up cornering me in the house. And while I'm in the house, I barricade myself in, trying to get my lawyer there, you know. I'm like, man, get here before they kill me. You know, come get me. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, before he could get there, they bust the door down, uh, come in. They got the police dog with them, uh, <clears throat> ordered me on the floor, you know, handcuffed me, tied my legs up and everything. Now I'm laying on the floor handcuffed, and the dog goes crazy. Starts to bite me all over my legs, around my groin and everything, right? So I'm Jeez. taking it, and, they, and then I just couldn't take it no more. You know, you got somebody eating you alive. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you got even though you got a 12 gauge shotgun right in between your nose and your eyes, you know, you, you do your damage to take that pain. You know, you don't want mm-hmm. the guy to pull that trigger. 
You don't yeah. want his finger to slip. Well, anyway, it got so bad that I said, damn, that shotgun, I can't take this no more. So what I did is I started kneeing the dog and kicking him and, you know, doing anything I could to get the dog off of me. Well, when mm-hmm. that happened, one hit me over the head with a flashlight. And it hit me so uh-huh. hard that one of those steel flashlights that they carry, mm-hmm. well, it hit me so hard the flashlight broke. Wow. So then he like the glass shatter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another one hit me with a flashlight. Then the next thing I know, one said, "Oh, I got something better than that to hit him with," and he hit me with a, you know, one of those big old frying pans that you cook a chicken in. He just carved me with it. Bam! And blood just shot everywhere, and I went out. You know. Uh, oh. That's the last thing I remember. So that's the last thing you remember, and then you you go to prison. Um, but then the, the judge, in this instance, he offered you leniency if you testified against the crooked cops, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. He offered me uh, 10 years uh, if I would testify against these cops that beat me up, had a drug on me, and did all this other dirty stuff. And and when they wanted me to testify to it, it's just the stuff that I knew, you know, that, that did I have drugs this night? Uh, did the cops handcuff me and, and, and beat me in the head? Was I unarmed? Did I try to fight back? Uh, did they have a uh, justified reason and, and, and beat me like that? And as you know, they didn't, and, and I told them that they didn't. Wow. And, and did those cops go to jail? I think five went to jail. You know, it's hard It's hard for uh, people to, to send a white cop to jail mm-hmm. when the witnesses against them are black drug dealers. Mm-hmm. But you know, so I got five. one of those cops. You know, I got one of those cops mm. on my documentary now. Oh, really? Yeah, I tried to get the head one, but, uh, uh, you know, he's such a racist. Uh, the producer said when they called him that all he could say, the only thing he understood him say was nigger. Oh, my God. What's it like to come face-to-face with, with a guy who was part of this whole, that whole skillet flashlight frying pan thing uh, in present day? Nah, I don't know. You know, it was it was it was different. You know, I, I never thought that 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 it would ever go there. But uh, you know, I I, I forgiven and hoping mm-hmm. that I'm forgave. So in order for me to say that I'm starting a new life, you know, I mm-hmm. have to do that. I have to forgive and forget. So this in 1994 when you got out, you you had bought the theater in your community, turned it into the Freeway Academy, but. But there was a problem. Uh, the the money wasn't coming in. So, so no, what bought, happened then? I bought that in '89. I bought two months before the feds caught me. Okay. Yeah. So and, and then, uh, I'd had it all the time while I was in prison. But while I was I in prison, uh, the deal that I bought it on didn't go right, and 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 I wound up getting charged six thousand dollars a month. So when I got out of mm-hmm. prison, you know, uh, I had this big bill that I owed. And you know I needed the money. Mhm. And when you needed the money, that's when uh, Danilo came back into your life, right? Exactly. Okay. And and at this point, this this is when the feds caught you, and it became clear that he was working for the for the authorities. And I read that um, Chico Brown uh, even said he saw. Danilo laughed at you guys. 
what was that like, this guy that you had trusted all these years doing this to you? It was hurtful that I'd been betrayed like that. Um, you know, it's hard when somebody that you love and care for uh, betrays you. So it was very tough. Was it well, uh, was it as bad as Rick Ross giving you the finger? No, no. Rick <laughs> Ross, is, I mean, what Danilo did was way worse than what Rick Ross. Um, William Roberts, I mean, yeah, he's not William even relevant. Roberts, yeah. yeah, he's not even relevant. When they're, not, they're not even in the same category. You talk right. about Danilo Brandon tried to take my life. Yeah. Oh, and then it started coming to light that the, the Reagan administration was illegally selling arms to Iran to fund the Contras, of whom Danilo was one, uh, and the CIA was in on the action. Um, but nobody was claiming responsibility. So you're locked up for, for life with no parole, and there's no responsibility, no apologies from the government. That that must have hurt, too. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To know that, that all these other people that were involved, who really were, were the perpetrators of, of the whole thing, had got off scot-free. And even Danilo, who he was only given 28 months, right, and a green card and a salary? Well, they say he did 28 months. We don't believe that he did. Uh, mm-hmm. We we believe that uh, uh, that he was in and out of jail every day. Okay. How was the actual capture somebody, of you uh, somebody, facilitated? Somebody told me that was there when he was there that the guy never ate dinner in jail. <laughs> so then you know he's going he's going in and out every day. He's got some friends in there. Um, and, but the actual um, the actual event when when he uh, aided the authorities in in capturing you, how did that go down? Well, what he did is is, is over a six-month period, he had coerced me into believing that he had 700 keys and that uh, he was going to give them to me at a certain price. Mm-hmm. So when we came and when Chico handed the money, uh, he had, had the keys to me to the car that the drugs were supposed to be in. And at that time, the police come from everywhere, two helicopters. It was just crazy. Wow, like two helicopters night. and police surrounding you. Yeah, they knew I was going to run. They had my M.O. And did you run? Oh, absolutely. I was headed for the Mexican We're... border. <laughs> wow. Were, uh, were shots fired at you by the police? No, no, they didn't fire shots this time. Wow. So They, they helped their guns. They said they want to take me in alive. I see. They wanted me to be their trophy. Right. They wanted to hang me on their wall a, and they did fail. They thought that was a great victory for them, uh, capturing Absolutely. Them. Absolutely. But I proved them wrong. I come up out of there. Yeah. Exactly. Now they mad. And tell, me, <laughs> tell me about this this reporter, Gary Webb. Um, did Did his articles change your life? <laughs> Did his article do what? Did did was it his articles that that kind of was the catalyst to getting you out of prison? Well, what Gary did for me was gave me what I I, I would call a good look. Mm-hmm. Meaning that there's a lot of people in prison right now that are innocent. Yeah. 
But when there's nobody looking, then the system will do whatever it wants to do. Right. If they don't think nobody's going to say anything to have any relevance. See, when you're in prison, you lose all your rights. Mm-hmm. You literally, you're literally a slave when you're in prison. Wow. So, so these guys felt like, that I didn't have any rights. Uh huh. What was what was a, a a typical day in prison like for you? Well, when I first started, lonely, boring, and stressful. And I'd imagine that, that no one wanted to no one wanted to mess with you because you're Rick Ross, right? Well, that and the fact that 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 after I went back to jail, after I said that I was going to be be straight. Yeah. I mean, so you know, even right been... now, even right now in the lawsuit, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the one of the universal lawyers, she hypes on that that uh, I'm a drug dealer. Wow. Even though Universal peddles drugs. <laughs> Ain't that some shit? Mm. So this this Gary Webb and and this article. Um, that, it it kind of as you said it was a good look when you heard he committed suicide did uh did that sadden you absolutely gary gary was a friend mhm i mean we became friends over time you know if you're you talking to somebody every day for a couple of years you know you guys build a bond so when when gary yeah. got killed it definitely affected me i definitely felt the pain uh i definitely felt that i had lost uh, somebody who was in my corner, somebody that was pulling for me, and uh, somebody that wanted justice, not only for me but for everybody. Uh, you say he he got killed. Do you believe that he actually took his own life? Uh, I don't know. I don't have you know I don't have enough facts to really make an assumption of of how how it happened. You know, and I'm like any other friend. That friend maybe committed suicide. It, it would be hard for them to believe. You know, it's like man, right. I'm talking to this guy. He was full of life. He was ready to go. He was on a mission. Uh, so I believe that, you know. So in, in your mind, you have this belief that he wouldn't have killed himself. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then you, you got your uh, life sentence reduced to 16 years. Um, how did you? Uh, how did you manage to do that and get released in 2009? I pretty much became a lawyer. You know, I went from being an illiterate person to a literate person who could study the law and find issues that uh, that was wrong in my case. Okay. I thought my case. I thought my case should totally be reversed. You know, because they have laws that say the person shouldn't be targeted uh, by by the police if they're not selling drugs. Uh, Another one called predisposition, meaning you have to be predisposed to commit a crime before the government comes in and start offering you an opportunity, and I was neither predisposed nor was I selling drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you just, use those facts as a way to kind of get out? Yeah, just for the record, I haven't sold drugs since 87. Okay. So you were being put away, I mean, after you had you had quit the drug game then. Right. Well, it, it doesn't matter. 
with the government if you quit selling drugs or not. You know, if a guy yeah. sells drugs and he quits for six and a half years, right before that seven-year statute of limitation, the government can come in and and uh, and charge him. Mm-hmm. And um, so now now you're out. You're doing a lot of good things, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, the 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 crack epidemic um, that began in the 80s. It's it's caused poverty, homelessness, crime, shootings, death. Um, But, you know, they they say you should have no regrets. Do you have regrets? Uh, I don't don't really understand that. uh, When you say, do I have regrets? Mm -hmm. Uh, Would I do it over? Doing what I know today? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Was the same person I was in 1979, do I think I would do it over? Absolutely. So the person you are today, absolutely not. The person you were then, yes. Exactly. I see. Um, I, mean, I want to read this. this. Sorry, you're talking ahead. about a person who didn't have any hope. He didn't know what his mm-hmm. future was looking like. Uh, he was desperate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, like a lot of other kids uh, out here that are desperate. You know, you got to be desperate to to walk up with somebody with a gun and stick a gun in their face and tell them to give up their money. Yeah. Just, but people I mean, are doing it. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, be, they're still doing it. You got to be desperate to stand on the streets and sell your body. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I like your attitude, then. It's it's a very forward-thinking attitude as opposed to looking back in regret. Um, I want to read this, this letter that you wrote in prison it's, um, and get your reaction. Uh, you said, I've been involved with enough destruction. Now it's time to make some positive impacts. I strongly believe that getting involved in drugs was the biggest mistake I made in my life. The number two mistake was to try to do it again one more time. The drug becomes a crutch for the dealer as well as it does for the users. Even now I have urges of power and money and on occasion nightmares of one last score. Uh, explain that quote to me. Where you get that letter from? got it from um, American Gangster, BET. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that letter says a lot, man. I mean, yeah. that letter is, you know, it was my feelings, the way I feel. I still feel that way right now today. You know that mm-hmm. that that drugs become a crutch. It becomes a way to to make everything better. You know, not only for the dealer but also the user. Yeah. And and you know, I also tell people all the time that if you went right now and you took all the dealers off the streets, users would create their own dealer. Mhm. Yeah. And you think that they would have like they that they would all become their own dealers or that they would prop someone up and go to him. We might need to go back to Richardson. Say that again. I'm sorry. Say that you, again. You say users would would make their own dealer. Would they, would they each become their own dealers or would they kind of prop someone else to be their dealer? No, they're going to create a dealer. Users created me. Mm. Users created me. They yeah. made me who I became. They taught me. Mm-hmm. They taught me where the drugs sold for, how much to sell it for, how to put it on the scale and weigh it. Right. 
and, and then that became Freeway Ricky Ross. So let's move on to, to more uh, to happier things. Um, you were a big tennis player in high school. I was a big tennis player in high school. Let's play a little game called Which Tennis Player Do You Like Better? Here we go. There we go. Sound of a surf. Um, Freeway Ricky Ross, which tennis player did you like better, McEnroe or Connor? Mac. Mac. All the way? Yep. Agassi or Sampras? Agassi. Me too. Uh, Kornikova or Navratilova? Tilova. Okay. Venus or Vetus, meaning Venus Williams or Vetus Garolitis? Venus. <laughs> and Venus or Serena? I like I like Gerolitis, though. He was he was nice. Uh Serena mm-hmm. Venus or Serena? Nah, Serena. You'd have to go with Serena. <laughs> and last up on which tennis player do you like better? Justin Timberlake or Justin Bieber? I guess who do you think would play better? I don't know. We ought to put them together and do a match for charity. <laughs> Maybe they could do it for your, your foundation then. That would be great. <laughs> so t- tell me a little bit about the Freeway Literacy Foundation. Well, the Freeway Literacy Foundation was put together to help uh, underprivileged kids to read. Uh, I raise money. You know, Well, you know, when I go to these prisons, uh, juvenile detention centers and stuff, you know, a lot of these kids don't have parents. Or the ones who do have parents don't have parents that care about them. So what I do is yeah. I give out books. I give out my favorite three books that I read that really helped me turn my life around. And uh, I try to get those books to the kids when I go to the prisons, as well as to the schools. You know, I go and speak at uh, foster care uh, uh, homes and stuff like that, and a lot of these kids don't have anybody to back them. So what I wanted the Freeway Literacy Foundation to do is to buy books to uh, to help those kids uh, with their reading. And what are your three favorite books? The Richest Man in Babylon, As a Man Think or As a Woman Think, and Think and Grow Rich. Okay. So it sounds like you're doing a lot of good there. Um, you also became the first federal inmate to create a social media website. How did you manage that behind bars? Uh, well, determination and willpower. You know, I, I believe... Uh, now that a person can can I mean the drug business taught me a lot. You know, it taught me that a guy that had, knew absolutely nothing about drugs could become a drug expert and could become uh, one of the sharpest guys in the drug business. So, with that knowledge, I made up my mind that anything that I put my mind to, that I could uh, I could do it. And yes, and you're doing it. And that that website is freewaysocialmedia.com, right? Yep, that's where they can go and get the T-shirt. And the T-shirt is the real Rick Ross is not a rapper. Uh, and on that note, I want to just play you a little clip of what uh, JoJo Capone said about Rick Ross on our show, and get your reaction. So this was his, this was JoJo Capone's encounter with Rick, Rick Ross. Give a listen. Here. So <laughs> you uh, say that you guys run into, like you and Rick Ross run into each other. On the street or in a bar or in a club or whatever, uh, would you be cordial with him or would there always be that kind of animosity like you didn't do what you said you would do? Uh, it's really hard to say, to be honest with you. It's really hard to say because me, me personally, I'm a grind, I'm a hustler, so I really can care less. 
But mm-hmm. but my my artists don't have to feel that way. So, what, what do you think about that? It seems like it seems like Rick Ross is pissing off a lot of people, or, or William Roberts rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he's let his fame go to his head, and and you know when you mix uh, cartoon with real street life, you know, uh, it's like mixing water and oil. They may not mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's so I asked JoJo what would happen if he met up with Rick Ross in real life. Um, what What do you think would happen if you ran into Danilo today? Um, I mean, it probably won't happen, but how would you react? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I've forgiven him. You know, I understand that mm-hmm. uh, what he did to me was part of the game, you know. Snitching goes with uh, 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 selling drugs. You know, most of the guys that get caught get caught because one of their friends told on them. Yeah. You know, nobody nobody gets caught in the drug business because uh, uh, they did everything right and 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 no cop uh, uh, busted them. You know, when you get caught, it's because you did something wrong or somebody that you thought was your friend. You know, winds up telling on you. So Danilo did exactly what he was supposed to do. Gotcha. And so you 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 for you see, I feel like a lot of people would hold a grudge in that situation, but you've been able to overcome that and and forgive whoever wronged you. Well, I know yeah, if you yeah. hold grudges, then it don't really hurt that person. It hurts you because you walk around with that on your chest, and they moving on in life. He's not even thinking about you. So with yeah. me, you know, I'm not even thinking about Danilo right now. What I'm thinking about is how can I sell a million T-shirts of the real Rick Ross is not a rapper. You know, mm-hmm. and, and 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 help my community out, and buy books for these kids at at these juvenile detention centers that need me. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's the Freeway Literacy Foundation, and the T-shirt is the real Rick Ross is not a rapper. You can get it at freewaysocialmedia.com. Uh, Rick, this was amazing to have you on. Will Will you come back and do our hot topics panel someday? Yeah, we will, we will, and then maybe, maybe, maybe I can bring Nick with me next time. You know, we'll we'll talk about the movie and stuff. Maybe, maybe we we'll get you to come out on the set, and or maybe might come out when I figure out how I'm gonna get this role uh, uh, <laughs> to to the people that's gonna play the next person I'm gonna let play in the movie. And you know, also too, uh, I'm having a job fair here in a couple of days. Uh, if anybody, oh, are you, where's that gonna be? It's gonna be in L.A., but you don't have to be in L.A. You can if you know how to use the internet and the telephone. Uh, uh, you still you still could uh, uh, be a part of this job fair. Uh, I'm gonna hire about 200 people. Okay, I'll hire them to do what? Uh, be a sales rep. And that's sales rep for your foundation. For my t-shirt. For the t-shirt. Okay. Yep. Sounds good. Uh, and, um, and it comes well, with training. It comes with training. I'm gonna train them how to do it and everything. Because you know, I are think you gonna train them yourself? A, yeah, I'm a, I'm a t-shirt expert. I'm an expert at selling t-shirts now. <laughs> you know, I right, one well, week. One week, I sold over four thousand dollars over t-shirts. One week. That's that's incredible. Well, keep it up with the t-shirts. I'm I'm glad that Blazing Rye Radio has a friend in you, Freeway Ricky Ross, and I look forward to talking to you again, sir. All right, cool. All right, thank you. Take care. All right, good night. All right, that was Freeway Ricky Ross. Uh, my next guest. Uh, wrote a book. It's about uh, Doc Watson 
That's the official Doc Watson biography. I was blind, but now I see. Please welcome to the program, Kent Gustafson. Hey, thanks. Kent, <laughs> how are you, sir? Pretty good. How are you doing? Doing fine. Uh, so sorry to keep you waiting with, with bated breath. No, no worries. That was that was fascinating stuff. I I it's not often I get to hang out with uh, with folks like him on the air. This is great. I I usually get sort of uh, pigeonholed uh, pigeonholed out with uh, sort of country music stuff and things like that. But uh, that's the cool thing about Doc Watson is he actually uh, he was an amazing blues singer and and was buddies with uh, with all the the blues cats in the 1960s. So uh, it's it's fitting. And I guess as a as a biographer. Um, you would find an interview like the one with Rick Ross, <clears throat> Rick Ross, uh, fascinating just as a biographer and musicologist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the culture that surrounds music is, um, you know, the stuff he's talking about is, is right in there. I mean, that's, that's the world that, that I look into, uh, with a lot of artists and it, it's been around. I mean, you, you look at the life story of, you know, Robert Johnson, somebody like that, um, it wasn't too much uh, different a hundred years ago when these guys were um, uh, playing blues and, and all that. You know, the amount of money might be different, the the uh, situation, the surroundings, but the stories were pretty similar. And um, you know, he he had a pretty neat story to to listen to, and and that's that's what I love about uh, writing a biography and 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 doing interviews is is uh, you know pulling out people's stories. Uh, so the the internet review of books said. Musicologists will appreciate the chapters on Doc's singing style and guitar work. Music fans will delight in the book as a whole, a splendid recounting of Doc Watson as a man whose approach to folk music on guitar was like Horowitz's approach to the piano. Now, Kent, what about people who hate music? Will they like your book? Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's the fun thing as a, as a biographer is to kind of um, um, – you know, uh, uh, treat the subject as as someone who's who's fascinating potentially to a, a wider public. And uh, you know, I've been very proud that a lot of folks have have read the book and enjoyed it. Um, you know, and been surprised that uh, they didn't need to know much about music or uh, you know, essentially what it what it is. It's a story of uh, Appalachia and it's a story of New York City in the '60s and it's a story of the the folk music movement. And um, you know, it's, it's essentially an American story of a, a blind man who grew up uh, poor in, in Appalachia and uh, and was able to, uh, you know, be on stages in front of American presidents and around the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know what, Ken? I just have one order of business to to take care of before we move on. I'm sorry. Let me just uh, follow up on this. I mentioned something earlier in the show. If I don't, it's kind of the elephant in the room. Uh, Gio, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, just uh, so sorry we we went so over with um, with Freeway Ricky Ross. Uh, do you um just tell me what you got going on in your life? What you want to plug before I get back to Ken? Well, no, I mean I got a lot going on actually. Like right now, uh, me and JoJo Capone is we working on the movie A Rap Money. It's a, it's a movie we plan on putting out by August. Uh, we look forward to putting it out. It's a few major features on it. Game's going to be in the movie, Rocco, and the rapper Future. Uh, what mm-hmm. else I got going on? I got a lot of things going on. Uh, fragrances. You know, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm just behind the scenes. You know, I do a lot of things. I'm like a jack of all trades. 
Right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. Well, then let's uh, let's talk even more about that next time you come on. Uh, thank you for calling yeah. in. It didn't want to leave you hanging there, but I really appreciate it, sir. Yeah. I I call him maybe another. Well, we'll we'll set that up. All right. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you All soon. Right. Thanks. All right, Ryan. All right. All right. Bye, you. All right, Kent. Um, now let's get back to you uh, personally. You're um, you're a musician yourself, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I play all kinds of things uh, with strings on them, and uh, I like to think of myself as a singer before all that. But uh, yeah, and I, my, uh, I got my PhD in um, classical composition, actually. So I sort of have a toe in a lot of different things. And uh, when you, when you first started dabbling, I heard you got into, uh, eventually got into avant-garde jazz. What is that? Well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I had um, uh, my publicity firm, uh, you know, made me uh, talk about a whole bunch of things in uh, in my background, and and I, what I like to to think is is any music is uh, good music if it's got real heart in it. Um, in in college, I got into sort of out music, uh, sort of even beyond jazz, you know, the Cecil Taylor and um, William Parker and um, the Chicago Art Ensemble and, and and music that's just you know kind of um, one one notch away from jazz, kind of over over the deep end. It's beautiful stuff, um, and I I love free expression, and that's actually part of why I got back uh, into um, um, you know Doc Watson and, and music that sort of has a real simplicity to it. Sort of the okay. antithesis, antithesis to sort of the free expression of you know jazz in jazz like the John Coltrane's late stuff and all that and. Uh, the antithesis and beautiful antithesis is sort of the simplicity of Appalachian music. The antithesis. So is that what that's what got you fascinated in Doc Watson? Um, and, well, and why do you think? Uh, yeah. What what fascinated you about him, and why do you think he's an American treasure? Well, for me, for me, um, the remarkable thing about Doc is that um, he was truly sort of colorblind, and he was also uh incredibly important uh for all kinds of um diverse uh groups of people so doc's audience went from new york uh, he had a huge following among sort of the new york jewish folk elite so he was discovered mm-hmm. by a a, Ju- a jewish mandolin player from new jersey um you know young david grisman who who of course uh, uh played with jerry garcia and the garcia grisman stuff um, uh, David Grisman was a little boy uh, leading Doc around New York City. Um, you know, uh, there, there's a huge connection between Doc and that and that world. And at the same time, you know, Doc is embraced down in Nashville and on the Grand Ole Opry as sort of a you know Earl Scruggs and that whole world. You know, um, he's he's beloved by conservatives and liberals and. Um, you know, Taj Mahal absolutely adores Doc Watson. Learned learned at his feet when Taj was a kid. You know, he 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 talked with me for two hours about Doc. Um, it, it's mm-hmm. just uh, you know Ben Harper, the singer, um, um, incredibly just just in awe of Doc. And 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 the reason people like him is because Doc was that he he tread that line between. Uh, representing race records and hillbilly records, you know, he listened to it mm-hmm. all. He was blind to what he was listening to, and he he brought all that out in his his playing. You just mentioned Ben Harper. I read that he said about Doc, 
There was a sense of grace, effortlessness, and fluidity to Doc's musicianship and singing that is nothing short of miraculous. Now, Kent, how high was he when he said that? (laughs) How high was Ben Harper? Oh, the the neat thing that I – what I love about uh, Ben Harper is that um, his – uh, yeah, I love his uh, "Burn One Down" song. Um, I think that's that's your your reference. But he he's an incredibly <laughs> spiritual guy. I mean, uh, his his music is so deep um, and and so tied to traditions. I mean, I love that album he does with the. Uh, uh, well, he does albums with all kinds of guys. I guess his latest one is is with a harmonica player. But um, t- uh, you know, Ben Harper also gets into folk, blues, jazz, rock and roll. Uh, some heavier stuff, you know, bluegrass. He can do anything. And his parents, um, um, or you know, his mother uh, owned a, um, a folk music shop, and his grandparents uh, ran a folk music series. And and his mother hung out with uh, Doc when she was a little girl. Uh, and Doc came and stayed at their house. It's a, just a neat, neat story. Wow. Um, and you you mentioned that he was colorblind. I was under the impression that he was completely blind. He was colorblind. He's actually. When I say colorblind, I mean sort of in the way that he loved race records and he loved hillbilly oh. <laughs> records. So, and he would sit on stage with Lightning Hopkins, and he'd sit on stage with Mississippi John Hurt, and he just absolutely adored these guys, and 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 vice versa. Um, they respected Doc and and Merle and their ability to play country blues, you know. Um, yeah, but he was actually blind uh, from just about from birth. And and how did he lose his eyesight? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's sort of up. Uh, Doc didn't really even know himself. I mean, he grew up in poverty. Um, you know, he, he sort of speculated that um, um, he'd been um, his eyes had been contaminated um, by uh, silver nitrate drops, which is kind of impossible, according to um, the doctors that that I've spoken with. But um, um, uh-huh. what probably what probably happened is some kind of illness in the womb or or some sort of um, childhood malady very very early in his life. So he never he never saw. Um, he, he saw a little light, and that was pretty much it. And, and the name Doc Watson that came from a, a Sherlock Holmes reference? No, yeah. In, in one in one um, liner notes, uh, they talk about uh, um, um, <laughs> mistakenly about Doc Watson as um, you know Sherlock Holmes sidekick, um, sort of coming from that. And, and although it's sort of an amusing reference, um, um, he um, Doc got his name. Doc is is sort of a spiritual um, reference in Appalachia. So so if someone kind of has a deeper seeing, people will, will call him Doc. That's uh, sort of a, mm-hmm. a common thing, and a lot of musicians get that nickname. So Doc Boggs, um, uh, many many others. Um, and um, when Doc was about 18 years old, 17 18, he was playing on the radio in Lenore, North Carolina. Um, his real name is Arthel. <laughs> which is kind of a an odd and a, a, a you know difficult to say on the radio and sound good. So the guy said, "Well, what what can we call you?" Um, and his his buddy at the time, uh, I believe he was playing with Frog Green, so it was easy to say Frog on the radio. So he said, "What can we call you?" And a a pretty sounding girl in the audience said, "Call him Doc," and that was pretty much it. And and Doc actually that believes it. that his nickname is what uh, got him pretty far in the business, which which makes a lot of sense. You know, Arthur Watson. Uh, wouldn't have had the ring that Doc Watson has. I see. Um, so you you interviewed many people for this book. Um, which which interview did you find the most enlightening? 
Well, I, you know, I, I was incredibly honored um, in, in terms of the, the people I was allowed to, to sort of hang out with. Um, Sam Bush was was really fun to speak with. He's he's one of my favorite people. You know, David Grisman was neat. Uh, Tony Rice, the whole list of guitar players um, that just adore Doc. You know, from Dan Crary and Tony Rice on down to you know Ben Harper in the pop scene and and guys like that. Um, I I really enjoyed uh, from a personal perspective having a chance to speak to Pete Seeger uh for the for the next upcoming edition and um a lot of the old folk elite um and uh, uh it is just it's just a neat thing I, I spoke to Mike Seeger before he passed away um that was quite an honor mm-hmm. um, you actually speaking to to Pete Seeger uh was a big deal for you why was he a, has he been a big influence on you yeah, I mean, you know, Pete Pete Seeger held the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, when it came to folk music in the in the '60s. Um, and you know, Bob Dylan, you know, sat at the feet of of Pete Seeger for a good five years when Dylan was in his early 20s. You know, I mean, um, and uh, you know, before he went electric, and the, and the legend goes, and and uh, Pete denies some of the parts of it, but the legend goes that uh, when Dylan went uh, electric. Um, you know, Pete Seeger was so uh, so upset he he uh, hacked the cord with <laughs> with an axe or something. It's a made up fairy tale, but basically, you know, wow. um, uh, Pete Seeger was kind of the the king of what what was really pop music at the time. I mean, Joan Baez and Peter Paul and Mary they all looked to Pete Seeger as sort of the the godfather of folk music back then. It just neat. Now, is Pete is is Pete Seeger any relation to Bob Seeger? <laughs> He's not. Uh, well, I guess we're all related somehow, right? But uh, um, you know, definitely kind of a different genre. I'm, 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 I'm into Bob Seger. I mean, that's what I used to uh, listen to in the uh, when I was washing dishes during college. You know, back in the dish room. <laughs> so, how would you feel if you set up a meeting with Pete Seger and it wound up being Bob Seger? Hey, I'd love it. I'd love it. I'd feel like an idiot for the first thirty seconds, but uh, I'd love it. <laughs> Actually, and I ended up with a couple of those kind of situations. I'd end up talking to somebody I didn't think it was, you know, I'd think, oh, this is this is the wrong guy. What am I going to ask him? So I, uh, that's always fun. That must happen to you too, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, it does, actually. Sometimes uh, if we don't get our booking right, and then we're talking to somebody that I didn't expect to talk to until a week later or something, you just have to kind of go with it. Um the uh, so in terms of the best story that you heard about Doc, what do you think was the best story when you were doing your research? Well, I mean, um, you know, Doc is a fascinating guy. Um, the stuff I tend to like most is, um, you know, the really nitty gritty, you know, tiny details of his early life. But I think when it comes to people reading uh, his biography, the stuff that, that stands out most to them is. Um, you know the, the the details of his time at the Raleigh School for the Blind. You know when he was uh, kicked out for smoking. You know as a, a little blind boy, troublemaker. Um, you know he the the story of Merle Watson's death, Doc's um, Doc's son, who uh, you know had terrible trouble with um, with the demon of of drugs and alcohol and and. Um, you know the way I, I was able to really tell the story in a way that I think respects Doc and, and didn't reveal too many of the sort of facts of the case, so I didn't shock anybody. But um, it was just a sad story of 
you know, it was a, a high time uh, in the 70s and 80s, and it all came crashing down in 85 when, when Merle uh, uh, when Merle died uh, rolling his tractor at 4 in the morning after a party. So Merle was drunk or, or high on his tractor when he died? Yeah, I mean, so, so the whole story, you hear a very different story in the underground than you hear um, from the family, and that's part of the fascinating and heartbreaking tale because, you know, um, Doc's family is, is very Christian and, and very um, pious, um, and, mm-hmm. and so was Merle in a lot of ways, but it was something they just didn't want to tell, I think, um, sort of the real truth. And I, I kind of wish they would and just say, this is what happened, and it's terribly sad, you know. But, uh, yeah, you know, Merle, Merle got mixed up in a lot of things. He he, he sort of went off on benders um, and did this, that, and the other, as people are fond of saying. Um, and uh, it was a time when people were experimenting with a lot of cocaine and uh, different drugs, so you know it's it's not surprising that uh, that that was the world um, he was mixed up in. And is that what kind of his his addiction what led to his complicated relationship with his father? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, but I mean, generationally, you know, you've got a long-haired, bearded uh, son <laughs> in the in the 70s and 80s who's like uh, t- touring the country and and there's screaming girls who come and see him after the concert and and his dad is um sort of a very staid appalachian you know born in 1923 you know kind of a the old school appalachian strict fella in a lot of ways they were good buddies but there were definitely conflicts you know the the very liberal um thoughts and lifestyle of merle and and um deeply conservative doc i i think you know a lot of people hinted at it um there were no blowouts or anything but i think uh, certainly certainly had a lot of tension there and of course when you're on stage supporting your dad merle drove him around he took care of the business he played behind him on stage but doc was the one everybody came to see so there's there's that troubled relationship too of course although he adored his father mm-hmm. and, and you've sold thousands of these these books what what do you think makes doc watson so relevant still today well it's you know the thing is i i wish um you know what i'm working on now is getting the book out to a wider audience because the fascinating thing about doc is that he didn't fit into a category he's a guy that that wanted to step out on stage play great music change people's lives he sat down with um philadelphia jerry ricks um in in philadelphia um, this blues player, a guy that was washing dishes at a folk club and singing the blues. And Doc and he were like two peas in a pod every time they were hanging out together. Doc ended up staying on the road because of this guy. Um, and uh, Jerry said, you're not staying at a hotel. Come over to my house. And Doc split the groceries, and they had a, an incredible time together for the week. He he did, He really did not see divisions between genres he wanted to uh, there's a story that tom paxton told me of doc sitting backstage at uh, uh the gaslight i believe in new york city uh, with mississippi john hurt you know this in this ancient uh wonderful uh blues playing uh, if, if people haven't heard mississippi john he's amazing and doc was sitting there with a tape recorder asking him about how he played and doc was you know uh, more famous than Mississippi John, but he sat there humbly backstage, just hoping to learn from the master. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and you've you've launched the second and are launching a third uh, printing of the book. What what are the differences between the the versions? 
Well, um, it, it's been an interesting journey. So the 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 first the first edition, of course, was I mean, it's the first biography um, you know ever published about Doc, and um, it was received. It, it had mixed reviews because uh, a lot of people just didn't didn't want a biography of Doc written. I mean, there's some. It's not immensely scandalous the way I've written it, but um, there's a few things that um, the family just didn't want to talk about. Um, so there was sort of dealing with all of that. I I did my best to take all the criticism in, and two years later we came out with the second edition um, into a wider distribution, and it, it did really well, which has been great. Um, Doc unfortunately died um, two months after the book was re-released. So <laughs> immediately there was this rush and wave of all these people wanting to give tributes, and um, uh, and so you know I did many more interviews and, and compiled a lot of those things that people said, and, um, and then of course had to turn the book uh, past tense. So, you know, Doc is now um, has now died. So. Um, just a, a few little changes and then some updates and and uh, we've got some new illustrations and all that coming out so it should be fun. So did he actually um, was he able to uh, read the uh, first version? Um, so I, I believe that um, I believe he did not read it. I think um, mm-hmm. he's of the generation. I mean, he was eighty nine years old. I I, I think mm-hmm. there's a a lot of people that just don't want to be confronted with with difficult things, you know, and mm-hmm. um, even even details of their own lives. Doc didn't like being put on a pedestal. He didn't like being uh, talked about. He didn't like being, uh, you know, worshipped. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a statue of Doc down in Boone, North Carolina, that they put up, and he approved it only uh, if uh, he said they, as long as you write on the back, just one of the people. You know, he didn't want to be uh, anybody special. He wanted to go back home to where he was from, live in his own little house, listen to the birds, you know, not be bothered. Yeah. Um, your your bio says about your, your writing, his vibrant, erudite, and enthusiastic prose demystified Watson's astounding musicality and dissects the paradoxes and complexities of the man with bold sensitivity. Can you say <laughs> that and make it sound less pompous? <laughs> yes, I, uh, I an incredible bio writer put that together. His name's Lorne Berman. Um, mm-hmm. He he does uh, a lot of work with Spin Magazine and some other things. He he made uh, he made me blush with all that stuff. I I mean, <laughs> you know what I what I tried to do with the biography is um, not. I, I mean, you try to capture the person, right? So. Um, if I was writing a biography about your previous guest, it would have a completely different tone than the biography about Doc, you know. And um, yeah. I tried to really capture the essence of Appalachia in the 1920s and 1930s. I tried to capture what it was like to listen to the radio in Raleigh, North Carolina, which was like the big city in the in the 30s, you know. What was it like mm-hmm. to step off the, the, the bus in North Carol- in uh, in New York? Doc, you know, Doc uh, rode the Greyhound bus by himself with a banjo all the way from North Carolina to New York as a blind man, right? Steps off mm-hmm. the bus hoping that the person he's supposed to meet is there, right? Uh, in the middle of time in the middle of Times Square in uh, in New York. It's, it's an incredible thing. Um, I did my best to sort of just describe the scenes, you know, describe the pictures. Um, and that was, that was my goal. 
did he wind up meeting that person? Say it again. Did he wind up meeting that person that he was going to meet in Times Square? Yes, yes, he did. Um, he he says he never really, uh, he never really was, um, uh, he never missed a connection. But for years and years, for about three or four years, he literally was tra- touring the country uh, for you know sometimes five six weeks at a time um, as a blind man, uh, going from one location to the next on the bus or wherever else, and just hoping that that person is there to meet him. And he actually got an ulcer and. Uh, was terribly anxious uh, during that period, and I can imagine why. Yeah. Um, and, and you can't have been complimented by many of, of Doc Watson's friends and relatives. That must be um, gratifying. That's, I'd imagine that that's kind of the, the highest compliment you could receive from people who actually uh, knew him. Oh, yeah. I, I And, uh, you know, the, the fact that I, you know, I was able to interview, you know, um, hundreds, uh, including the off-the-record people, and, and just over a hundred interviews are in the book uh, of of his musical colleagues and, and um, close connections. Um, one of the one of the greatest compliments uh, you uh, you could ever receive is to, to to hear from a family member who says, "I understand uh, my uncle or my grandfather or, or this person better because of your book." I mean that's a that's a, wow. the highest level of praise, and I I got yeah. it from several directions, and it was it was just uh, the thrill of a lifetime. That's great. Um, and you, uh, your life, sir. You you've taught you taught leadership, writing, literature, music, and German at Stony Brook University. How did one teach leadership? Yeah, well that's that's kind of the question, isn't it? I mean. Um, <laughs> Um uh, my my favorite the favorite uh, the thing I said to all my students at the end of uh when they graduated with leadership minors um was that um you you are <laughs> you're great leaders on campus right you're, you're the college kids they were on all of the committees they were presidents of everything and I said you know guess what the second you get out there in the world you will fail and again this mm-hmm. is like my the, your previous guest I mean it's there will be real highs and there will be real lows, you know. And I, you know, when you climb a mountain, you're not going to live at the top of that mountain. You're going to go to the top of the mountain and then you're going to have to come back down again. Are you going to climb that same mountain again, or are you going to go to the next mountain? I mean, leadership is fun because you get to just inspire all the time, right? But I, I really wanted to tell them also, like, you're going to get a kick in the pants. Like, you are going to fail. You are going to be poor and broke, and what are you going to do? <laughs> Did you maybe were you trying to kind of comfort people in, into believing that it was okay to fail from time to time? Yeah, I mean it's not okay to fail. It's great to fail. I mean, like if you don't fail, you're never going to learn. I mean, you know, this is yeah. it's that's what's so fun about watching. Like, you know, you see a video of like a lamb that gets born or something, and then you see him sort of stumbling around. You know, like when it's you learn how to walk you learn how to fly you learn how to play an instrument you know you uh your former guest you, you learned how to be really good at at doing what he did you know and it's it's it, you become great you know by doing it yeah um now about doc you said he literally started a brush fire in my musical mind now <laughs> as a as a university Professor, should you be advocating the misuse of the word literally like that? <laughs> hey, it's something I said. They took out of context. You are very, you are very right. It, it didn't literally start a 
in my mind. That would have been all kinds of painful. So, <laughs> Well, Kent, where can people go to buy your book? Well, um, they can go pretty much anywhere, you know, blind. But now I see uh, from time to time it's free on Kindle, uh, which is always a fun thing. And if if somebody in the media or um, somebody who's willing to spread the word quite a bit uh, wants to uh, reach out, I'm happy to send out press copies. But otherwise, they can get them at their local store on Amazon or just about anywhere else. And what is your website? Uh, they can check out my website. It's kind of a placeholder. Um why don't they they can visit me on Twitter? How's that, Doctor Kent D R K E N T? And they can send oh, me a direct great. message. I'll I'll hang out and respond to them. Cool. And that thank God for Twitter because that's how we've been able to coordinate all our silliness the last couple of weeks. I'm glad we finally got it together tonight. Yeah, this has been fun. Absolutely, sir. I I really appreciate it. Take care. Follow him on Twitter, Doctor Kent. Thank you very much. Have a good night. You too, sir. Good night. All right, that was Kent Gustafson. Um, so uh, we have had quite a night on the show, went way over, um, just trying to see if uh, somebody's still here. Uh, Tamika, are you there? Tamika? Can you hear me? Hello? Tamika, Tamika? Are you there? Oh, I think she may have fallen asleep. All right, well, since she's not here to say her Barbie line, I will say it for her. Um, big thank you to Geo. Big thank you to uh, Freeway Ricky Ross. Uh, big thank you to Ken Gustafson. Huge thank you to Sean Broyles for sticking around as long as he did. Uh, great friend of the show, despite my insulting him at the top. And big thank you to, to Megan Stass. Uh, big thanks to Ken Gustafson. Uh, I can think of no better way of ending the show than by saying if it ain't showbiz, it ain't a biz. Hit the brakes, Florence. And if you have a Barbie, you take that doll. You bend her backwards. You burn her knuckles on the stove and leave her in some drawers. Good night, everybody.